0: a podcast about christianity and leftist politics i'm dean detloff i'm a catholic phd student at the institute for christian studies in toronto and i write as a journalist and uh, i do a hundred other things
1: Uh, i'm matt bernico i teach at greenville university in greenville illinois Um, my research interests are media archaeology cultural studies um and right now Man, I'm going through a real hard time in life because I'm out of LaCroix. I don't have any to drink. Oh, no! I gotta just drink regular water.
0: <laughs> that is not what you want. That's not what I you know. specifically want.
1: That's right. Uh, it is not what I want. Uh, on the upside, I am incredibly hydrated. And on the downside, it just, <laughs> just tastes like water.
0: You got no bubbles down there. No uh that is bad i'm sorry uh on the bright side you could just give up LaCroix altogether for lent and you'd already have a a running head start so by the time the rest of us get into Lent and start complaining you can be like this is actually baby stuff
1: Ooh, i don't know that seems like a pretty hard thing to give up for lent
0: (laughs) yeah i mean you wouldn't you wouldn't want to give up anything hard for lent
1: no i'll give up uh hey i don't know if you heard this before but i'm gonna give up uh juggling watermelons for lent
0: Oh, yeah, I can see why that would be a challenge for you specifically. Um, the real spiritual discipline, uh, denying your desires, your natural appetites. Um, I think you you'll probably learn a lot from that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think so. Uh, how about I just uh, give up Lent for Lent? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: how about you do that? Um,
1: what What do you uh, people in the Catholic Church do for the Lenten season? <laughs> what does that look like over there on that side of the uh, that side of the fence?
0: uh we do a few things there are words you're not allowed to say that's pretty fun uh oh yeah no we do that one i like that yeah that's a good one um we don't eat meat on fridays which is great for me because i don't eat meat at all so uh real easy um last year i did vegan fridays that was pretty good maybe i'll do Hmm. that again
1: i get down vegan fridays
0: that sounds okay i could i could do that eat some tofus and everyone at the school cafeteria will be like, "Why are you doing that?" And you'll sound like a really interesting person now. <laughs> Protestant land. That's right. <laughs> uh, maybe I'll give up watching the Olympics for Lent. They're concurrent. Oh, so.
1: dang! That's easy for me. I don't. I've I actually been watch. watching a ton of it. Oh really? What's been yeah, the I... best uh, sport?
0: Uh, obviously curling. Uh, there's really no, no, uh, no contest there. Curling would win the Olympics of the winter Olympics if such a thing (laughs) existed. Uh, but (laughs) apart from that, Emily and I were watching all these, um, skiers. The best part is like, we're completely ignorant about sports, uh, but it's on the CBC all day. So we just turn it on. And uh, we were watching uh, these skiers just completely beef it over and over and over again going down this hill, and uh, <laughs> so we we're just sitting here watching them and being like, "Oh my gosh, can someone please get to the bottom of this hill?" But we're just like sitting on our couches, like lazy, <laughs> lazy dorks who like never skied down a hill that size in our lives.
1: Yeah, uh, that's pretty cool. That's wild. Are there any good sports that where where like uh, the natural transition is like sitting on the couch to some kind of sport? What's that? Hmm. What's that one? What's that Disney Channel movie where it's like sitting on the couch and then you're good at a sport also? Uh, darts. Yeah. Okay. I could do that.
0: Well, uh, Lent's coming up. I don't know. Do what you gotta do. Uh, I'm glad that we both importantly... knew that that
1: that was all over and that the jokes have all been had. <laughs> I don't, like simultaneously, we knew that that yeah. was it.
0: <laughs> you just you gotta end it when it's appropriate. Um sometimes the the segment is just asking for it. It's like, I'm ready, please put me away. Um, <laughs> today on the show, we're talking to Kaya Oakes, who is a writer uh, at a bunch of places like America Magazine, where I write, and uh, On Being and Killing the Buddha and religion dispatches and other places, including books and I don't know, she she writes a lot of stuff, good stuff. Uh, but she's also a writing teacher at UC Berkeley and we're gonna chat with her about a specific piece she wrote uh more on that later at religion dispatches um and also get a chance to talk to her about women in the catholic church and uh the religious left and the nuns the people who are uh uh marking that that good good nun bubble uh n-o-n-e on uh, religious surveys <laughs> Today we're chatting with Kaya Oakes, who is a writer and a journalist and a poet and a lot of other things all at once. Uh, a lot of very good things. Um, maybe we can talk more about all the things that you are soon, Kaya. <laughs> but okay. uh, just to start, we should uh, just ask, what have you been up to these days? What's going on in, in Berkeley in February?
2: Well, thankfully, we haven't had any riots this semester. So that's great. Um <laughs> We're very happy about that. Uh, and the semester started about, oh my gosh, it's we're already in the sixth fifth week. So uh, things are just barreling ahead. Um, i'm I've got two things coming out in the next month or so, both in books. One is this book from liturgical press with fifty essays on Pope Francis by fifty different writers. And that's actually mm. out today, and it's a lexicon. So for various words, each of us contributed um, a short essay, and mine's on gossip and how the Pope talks about gossip. And nice. um, yeah, it's got a great, uh, great selection, and everybody from theologians to journalists and and the ecumenical patriarch. So there you go. <laughs>
1: That sounds cool. cool.
2: Oh, yeah. And then the other thing I have coming out is an essay on Thomas Merton. I've been writing and thinking a lot about Merton in the last couple of years. Probably just a reaction to world events. A lot of people are going back (laughs) to getting interested in monasticism. and, And so in March, there's a new book coming out called What I'm Living For, Seven Lessons from the Life of Thomas Merton and the editor of that book asked me to write about merton and sex so i got the ju- wow. i got the juicy chapter <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, he did well i'm out. very curious
1: yeah
2: well there there, there was sex at, at the monastery um, so that's all i'm going to say and <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's a great teaser, actually. I super want to pick it up.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so that's what I'm up to right now.
0: Nice. Uh, That's exciting. Uh, Matt, what have you been up to in Greenville, Illinois?
1: Wow. Nothing that fun, juicy, or exciting. (laughs) Uh, I'm teaching like 100 classes, and I am uh, physically and emotionally uh, basically a dead person. Uh, (laughs) I am so tired (laughs) and exhausted five weeks into the semester, and uh, that's all I'm doing, just teaching and struggling to get through just barely barely being alive i hear that that's all i I have to report yeah (laughs)
0: Yeah. (laughs) that's rough that's a bummer yeah um i uh i'm not teaching any classes that's not a thing that i do but i am gonna go to a conference soon in atlanta on thursday and uh talk a little bit about some research that matt and i have been doing on christians for socialism and uh, that's pretty exciting. It's, it's like one of those trips where I'll land on Thursday, give a paper on Friday, and then fly back out on Saturday. So uh. <laughs> it's gonna be kind of a lot, I feel like, but uh, it should be fun. It seems like the people who are going are really interesting. And I'm excited about that. I haven't been to a conference in a while. So that's cool. Uh, yeah, got that that nerd, nerd juice flowing. Through my veins. Atlanta,
2: yeah. Atlanta's a great city if you like food and music. If you like hip hop and you know, and R and B and stuff. And then it's a, I've never been there. It's a real foodie city. So just ask a local, you know. Um, I've been there for a couple of conferences. The one bummer is it's huge. So like getting from the airport <laughs> into town is gonna take a long time. <laughs> so but it's a fun town to go to. And yeah, I've got a conference. I got to go to Grand Rapids in March for the Festival of Faith and Writing at Calvin College. Cool. So uh, yeah. yeah, I don't know if you guys have ever been to that. It's my first time, but I'm doing a panel on women who write outside of the boxes in their religious denomination. So it's huh. two Catholics, one Mennonite, one evangelical, and one ex-evangelical. So it'll be mm-hmm. fun. That
0: sounds it cool. Sounds, um, yeah, sounds cool. I have never gone to that conference in particular, but I went to undergrad at a place called Cornerstone University, which is down the road literally from calvin uh-huh. and, uh, lives lives in its shadows. So.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I went to the college uh, no one's ever heard of, so I hear you on that like,
0: yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a weird place um. I I wouldn't say that I regret going there, but I don't know that I would encourage anyone else to go there. That's sort of how I feel about it after the fact. Uh, um, yeah, I don't know. What well, evangelicalism is weird. Uh, that's all I can say about that, really. Yeah, <laughs> but Calvin is absolutely
1: cool. wild. Evangelical yeah. colleges are doubly weird. It's uh <laughs> it's weirdness squared. It's so strange.
2: It's <laughs> totally foreign to me, and that's what's been interesting in the last couple of years. Is that I've taught at some writing workshops and giving talks, and there have been women turning up who are evangelical women, and they're really fascinated by Catholicism, but they're not quite ready to, like, (laughs) cross the river, and so they'll they'll read Dorothy Day and get woke, you know, and be like, oh, oh, everything in Catholicism is like that? Sign me up, and then they go, no, not really. But they're <laughs> yeah. wonderful, like they're amazing women who are just realizing that the theology is not as deep as they want, and they're looking for something else. So a lot of them end up in, in Anglican communion churches as a sort of, yeah, like, yeah. so it's, somebody should be watching that, because it's actually, like, in writing about it, it seems to be happening more and more since the election, so there you go.
0: Cool. Well, that'll be fun. A Calvin, I'm sure. Uh, and maybe that's a good transition to start chatting about an essay that you wrote recently um, that we're going to at least use as, a, as an excuse to get some themes on the table. Mm-hmm. Uh, so typically when we talk to an author about an essay or a book, it's a Magnificat tradition to have them give an elevator pitch for that piece of writing so our listeners can kind of be on the same page. Um, so we'll get into some of your other research as we go, but we want to start with an essay you wrote at Religion Dispatches called Pope-splaining Women Remain Strawberries in Francis's book on happiness. Mm-hmm. Uh, great title. <laughs> uh, what was the motivation for writing that essay, and what were you hoping to accomplish?
2: I got assigned that piece by my editor, Evan Durkacz, and um, he saw that there was a new book coming out of uh, essays by the pope about happiness but we we both saw immediately on the table of contents that there was a whole section on women and evan knowing that i'm a feminist said you know do you want to write about this and i said yeah sure it looks terrible why not i'll totally write about that because <laughs> you know the pope has not had a great record on gender issues um so i i I read it, and it's actually just snippets from talks that he's given. It's not original essays. It's not an encyclical or anything like that. And a lot of it was kind of as you'd predict about, you know, the kind of complementarianism and roles of women. Uh, in the, He wants women to participate more in the church, but he's very... He doesn't have any suggestions as to how that could happen <laughs> or anything. <laughs> so the background for writing it was kind of looking at a larger overview of what is the problem with gender in the church right now. And why haven't we made any progress on that issue in since Vatican II? We're sort of still in the same exact place that we were, fifty. 60
1: years ago. Um, something I really like about this essay is that it draws out one of my sort of favorite moves in uh, in media in that it uh, compares sort of the representation or like the brand that something or someone has and then compares it to like what they really say, or really do. Mm-hmm. Um, seeing that sort of like, uh, I don't know, those two things juxtaposed and see like the sort of discord from them is always something that makes me as like a media scholar kind of excited. Mm. Um, and then, so in this essay, like, that's exactly what you do. Um, you sort of like draw out uh, like Pope Francis's brand. He's like a a Pope who wants us to think about liberation and he names systemic problems all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, But then you encourage us to think through like how liberating and systemically conscious Pope Francis really is when it comes to women in the church Mm -hmm. uh, because there's like a disconnect. Uh, Could you talk about that relationship a a little bit more? Um, How does Pope Francis as a media phenomena cover over like the real material relationships in the church that don't look like they'll be changing during his papacy?
2: Yeah, I think we're in this really fascinating era because we have a celebrity pope. I mean, not really since John Paul II. There was no offense to Pope Benedict, but people weren't as interested in what he had to say unless it was a bad thing. Um, (laughs) And so what we get as a result of that is this kind of glitch where people don't they pay so much attention to something Pope Francis says that's, that that's sort of perceived as progressive or uh, liberal. And then they don't notice the things he says that are sort of not in that sphere. So the recent example of this, that I guess a lot of us are struggling with is the, um, the clerical abuse issue when he was in Chile and how he, um, defended a bishop who's widely known to have covered up abuse and there's a continuum if you study clerical abuse and you look at that um at the patterns that happen there's a continuum between those patterns of defending and covering up perpetrators and defending and covering up sexual harassers which is also very much in the media right now and Mm -hmm. so that glitch from a media perspective is when AP broke the story last week or so about how a letter had been delivered to him by an abuse victim and the Pope either didn't read it or read it or, and forgot about it or read it and didn't do anything. Uh, This has caused a lot of schism, you know, in the coverage of, yes, we like the Pope. We like what he says about the environment, poverty, and then here's the big problem is that he's not really moving on this issue. Five years later, he's Mm -hmm. we're still in the same place. So that's an example. I think that parallels what I was writing about.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, It is kind of crazy to see how that uh, celebrity kind of, makes it easy to paper over those issues because I guess distracts because there are some cool things that Pope Francis doesn't say, but they, (laughs) they're not like good excuses for being extremely bad on (laughs) on other issues. (laughs) Uh, One of those issues obviously being women's issues. Uh, And I I think what I really like about your essay is that you, you kind of, I feel like funnel a lot of um, sort of big systemic problems uh, regarding women's place in the church. Uh, into, like, a really digestible <laughs> few paragraphs. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of those things you talk about is this just natural suspicion toward women mm-hmm. that is in the church. So you talked about a couple examples that you were talking about were investigations into women's orders and censoring female theologians in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess it's kind of hard not to see those actions and the wider culture in the Catholic Church as indicative of a certain kind of patriarchy that's probably not likely to change. <laughs> right. Uh, because it I mean, it's actively trying to protect itself. So, um, do you find sort of actions that have been, I don't know, uh, interesting or or hopeful on the part of whether it's women theologians or lay people or people in the hierarchy that suggest there could be some kind of change or, you know, what what do you kind of see happening uh, to resist that trend? (laughs)
2: Well, I think that the idea about women deacons is I'm of two minds about that one is that I don't think it's going to happen. I mean, I I think that they'll form a committee, the committee will investigate and then it will come back and say sorry, but you know, there's no historical evidence for this which is you know, can I swear? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Totally. Okay. So it's, it's bullshit, right? So we know that they historically existed. It's in the Bible. And then there's, <laughs> there's also, you know, tons of evidence um, in archaeology. Anyway, so, so, but my cynicism about that comes from two things. One is that I spent two weeks in Rome um, in late twenty. 20- 16 uh studying with a group of international journalists and looking at how the vatican is covered um and you know going to a papal audience and going to interview people who work in the vatican and stuff like that and there's so much spin you know it's just the vatican is just a spin machine and i saw that up close and i realized that i don't trust a lot of what comes out of the Vatican in terms of messaging. So getting back to your question about the women deacons thing, I don't think it's going to happen. And even if it did, a deacon is still um, below a priest hierarchically and a deacon is still technically a servant. So you're still putting women in a servile position instead of a position of authority. Now, on the other hand, what you see at parishes, and I don't think this is covered much in Catholic media, for a couple reasons, but is that because of the priest shortage, you effectively have women running parishes. Now they can't say mass, but they're doing all the administrative work. They're doing all the catechesis. They're um, they're basically running the churches, and they're doing that without ordination and without the ability to actually, you know, get up and and run the mass. And so that's a schism that I think that we don't acknowledge enough. Um, and then there's the, the, the theology layer too, which is that women are doing amazing work in theology, but um, it's not getting read or um, disseminated outside of academia, which is an academia problem, um, mm. which is that a lot of academics don't write for a wider audience. Uh, and if more women who are doing theology were able to be read outside of an academic audience, I think that would change a lot. But they either don't because they don't see that as related to their research, which is, you know, again, a larger problem with academics that they get stuck in this must get tenure, must go to conferences, but writing for m- wider outlets, not is not good because it doesn't contribute to tenure and it doesn't get you to conferences. Right. (laughs) Um, But you guys know all that stuff is, you know, so, but I think the bigger issue is just like, there's this glitch of women just not being able to be heard or their work is just not being heard or their, their work is invisible at the parish level, right? So the priest gets up and says mass, and that's all you see. And you don't see the woman who um, does everything else. She's erased, essentially. And that erasure is very patriarchal, and that's what I saw in Rome, was that kind of you know sense of like, I went to seminars for two weeks, I heard 20 plus speakers, there were three women, and one of them was a professor at the Pontifical Gregorian University. And I'd never heard of her, you know, I'd never seen her mm. work anywhere. So that's just the kind of example of the problem there. It's like you can be servile and you can be invisible to the larger world, but that's it. Anything beyond that, you're, you're, I mean, you don't exist.
1: Dang, that is. Um... A lot that I'm learning about Catholicism right now. <laughs> uh, this is sort of like a, uh, a weird follow-up question, I guess. But um, you were talking about women at sort of like the parish level doing a lot of this work. Do they get paid for that? Is that? How does that work? Like what's their like official role, like women who work at the parish level doing the administrative work? Is that like a paid position within the hierarchy or sort of just like something attached kind of off to the side
2: it's kind of both and um you know there's my jesuit side right like it's both so sometimes they'll have a paid administrative job as like parish secretary but Mm. then uh, they're but and they're also doing everything that they're not getting paid for so for example Mm. i was on um an rcia team at a church for several years and that's the people who prepare adults for baptism and Um, reception into the church and we didn't get paid you know for that and Mm. it's hours of work a week plus going to mass with someone every week for a year and then afterwards kind of and you're supposed to do it just out of the generosity of your own you know (laughs) spirit but it's a huge amount of work and you know women will get paid to direct a choir Um, But not very much. Um, And so it's it is a kind of like it's not very some of those roles are compensated and some of them are not compensated.
1: Yeah, well, that's helpful to know. Um, yeah. Seeing seeing the ways that, that erasure works sort of economically are interesting to me. Well, um, it probably exposed by those comments, uh, it is clear <laughs> that I'm extremely Protestant in the sense <laughs> that I have just like no idea what is actually going on in the Catholic Church beyond like sort of a cursory glance and like what I've read about church history like in my undergrad. Yeah. Um, so um, being a Protestant, I come from a tradition uh, called Free Methodism, which is just insignificant in sort of the history of the church but uh it has like a lot to say about the ordination of women and in mm-hmm. fact like a lot of our denomination is uh like the reason it was schismatic for a lot of reasons was because it wanted to ordain women mm. um and like my church specifically has two women pastors and i think that their presence like t- does so much for our congregation just mm-hmm. like the kind of conversations we have and the type of preaching we hear and all kinds of other ways too so all that to say, like, women in religious leadership is just, like, kind of normal for me and my, like, small Protestant world. Mm-hmm. So could you kind of explain, like, what the rub is here for all of our pro- Protestant listeners out there? Like, why is it such a big controversy? Um, like, why is women's ordination such a big controversy to people?
2: Well, it's historically a big controversy because, like I said earlier, we have some evidence that women were playing leadership roles in the early church. And then for some reason... Um, It got into the heads of the church fathers that apostolic succession was only from Jesus to men because they decided that the apostles were only men, which, you know, if I can swear one more time, you know, it's it's (laughs) bullshit again, because we know that the, you know, people at the foot of the cross were women and women were traveling with Paul and women were um deacons of home churches which essentially means they were priests because they were running these home churches and so so Mm. it's a big deal that i from what i know and one of the gifts of like my role as a writer in the last decade that i've been covering church stuff has been i've met lots of protestants and learned a lot about Protestantism because I grew up in a Catholic bubble, you know and uh, and I've learned a lot from friends who are, are female Protestant clergy. and one thing they say which you point out is that that they they are very valued and loved by their communities, but that sexism didn't end.
1: Yeah, absolutely you
2: know what I mean? Especially my, my friends who are Episcopal and Anglican communion that there's still a lot of, I don't know about Methodists. I have a few friends who are Methodists, but they're not ordained. So, and their pastor is a woman though. So, so yeah, but the, um, in the, in the Anglican communion that can still be very, not so much in the American Episcopal church, but in the UK, Anglicans are still pretty conservative and, that they have issues. They just appointed the first female bishop and that is a big, then there was, you know, it was a big deal for them, but it took how many years since women's ordination to get a bishop. Right. Mm -hmm, So mm. the Catholic church is 2000 years behind. (laughs) 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 So, um, so I, I guess in a nutshell, I, in, Protestant communities, you do have more women's leadership you do have more equity in in leadership but the sexism is still there a friend of mine who's a young Episcopal priest she was ordained and she had a hell of a time finding a job because community they call their pastors and I guess you do in Methodism too and people would look at her and say how can you lead our community you're too young Mm.
0: um
2: and it was this veiled sexism because if a young male pastor would come, that they would call that guy instead of her, right? So mm-hmm. I think there's some remnants of this throughout our different denominations. It's just that you all are way ahead of us in terms of letting us lead.
1: Yeah. Well, I think I think that's. I mean, what you're saying about sort of the 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 lasting sexism is totally true um despite like the interest in women's ordination in my denomination there are all all kinds of other sort of like more subtle ways to keep women out of ordination as well Mm -hmm. so um it's not like uh not like protestants are super always super progressive or something it's just like in some cases this has worked out for us
2: (laughs) yeah totally yeah i mean again as i mentioned meeting these young evangelical women who are coming out of you know uh, they're they're like opening their eyes and looking around and and going i don't i, I don't like this i want something different and they it's interesting mm. that they instead of going over to the elca or the ucc um you know these super progressive denominations they'll go to catholics or episcopalians because to them, the, liturg- the liturgical stuff is so different. It's almost like for a Catholic going to a synagogue, right? Mm. Like this is so different and so um, so embodied and so sensory in terms of the senses are being fed that they really find that fascinating. And then after a little bit, they're like, wait a minute, where are the women is even in evangelical churches, women can preach, women can read the gospel. You see what I mean? So mm-hmm. it's a problem.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, well, maybe we could talk a little bit about that sort of um, experience of you know women looking around at other traditions and then ultimately thinking through what it means to be Catholic because you've written a lot about that and obviously have some firsthand (laughs) experience with that. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this isn't really like a new question, but how does a, you know, a person who's a feminist and formed by punk music and that sort of thing end up uh, actually going to mass and keeping up with a faith that's organized by descending levels of male authorities?
2: Yeah. So I wrote a book about that, that came out in 2012. I was just talking to Matt Sittman, who I know has been on your show about that Mm -hmm. like Matt and I met on the internet like you meet everybody these days because he was working at the dish when that book came out and um and uh and what I said in the book is you know this is six years ago it's still true today in a certain way which is that the church that I belong to although I'm part of the Roman Catholic Church I've been to Rome twice and I never stayed very long, you know, so I'm not <laughs> I'm not Roman. I'm a Bay Area Catholic. Like my Catholicism is formed by growing up in this really diverse, really, really, you know, left leaning bubble of the world. And so although I have had the experiences of going to churches with male leadership i've never not been aware that women are you know basically running things behind the scenes um so that's made a big difference and it's also made a big difference being able to write um and being really lucky to be able i mean i write for america which i know dean does as well and that's a kind of Mm -hmm. um i don't want to say centrist publication (laughs) but it is right It's sort of the middle of the road, but I also write for Religion Dispatches, which is a secular magazine, so I can say whatever I want about the church there. Long story short, like I think that being able to write, and another big difference for me is that I teach at a secular school. So um, if I taught at a Catholic college, which I have in the past, I probably wouldn't be in the church. Mm. Um, and, and if I taught theology, I probably wouldn't be in the church. I teach writing and I teach literary journalism and I teach nonfiction writing. If I had to be immersed like you, like you guys are in theology as a student, I didn't study theology. Um, I didn't study religious studies. It's all very DIY, my knowledge of religion and, um, And I think that if I had to be immersed in it professionally full-time, I would just go crazy because the dichotomies would drive me away. But I'm able to be a secular person living in a secular world, teaching in a secular school, but to write about religion. So I'm able to be both an insider and an outsider. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't think I could do it as a pro. I did think at one point about – I applied for an MDiv program. I applied for a program to be a spiritual director because I'm really interested in talking to people about what they believe, Um, but I didn't get in. And so I decided that was the sign to just keep doing what I'm doing as -hmm. an outsider. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, hearing about that kind of formation part of your life is really interesting to me. Uh, so I do, I teach media studies actually at a Christian university.
2: Oh, so you know Um, what I'm talking about. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, And, uh, I mean like what you're saying about, you know, if you had to be, if you had to be a Catholic teaching at a Catholic university, you might be like outside the church and, uh, I am not outside the church, but Mm -hmm. feel very much a lot of times like I would like to be, um, Mm -hmm. just like that, uh, that intense sort of like way it's knitted into your life and the sort of cultural dissidences that you feel um, mm-hmm. are a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. It makes you feel crazy. Sometimes it makes me feel crazy. Sometimes mm-hmm. that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, here's another, um, sort of like Protestant question that, uh, seems kind of dumb, but again, I think will be kind of illuminating for like Protestant folks listening to this. Um, so, if it seems too dumb, you're welcome to tell me no. But um,
2: <laughs> nah.
1: <laughs> well, there's uh, so I I mostly work with like a lot of evangelical students and lots of just sort of like mainline uh, Protestant student Christians. Mm -hmm. And uh, they have lots of really wacky misconceptions about Catholicism. And I think just wacky misconceptions about the world in general, but uh, Catholicism specifically. Mm -hmm. Um, So, like, one thing that I I find kind of happening on campus when I hear students talk uh, a lot is just, like, the sort of, like, ways that Christians must be subject to authority in their different organizations. And, like, Mm -hmm. um, the way that plays out sort of in Catholicism is, like, I don't know, uh, students... uh, protestants at large probably just think that uh catholics have to sort of submit to the pope and as the main authority and kind of go with whatever the pope says
0: mm-hmm. and like
1: you can't really disagree which is like i think such a protestant understanding of religion to begin with that it's like about agreeing or disagreeing but anyways um i, I guess uh what strikes me about the pc row is like how strongly you disagree and how strongly you can like uh, have a variance of beliefs within catholicism mm-hmm. so how how do these disagreements like these like variances in like what you believe about uh, Christianity and Catholicism and like the way religion works impact sort of like your, your Catholic community or other Catholic communities? Mm-hmm. How does that, how does that work out?
2: Um, well, I think it goes back to what I was saying about being a California Catholic. It's funny because I'll have conversations with my editors at America mm-hmm. or Commonweal or, Um, something, and they're in such a New York bubble, you know, a lot of the time, like, they're finally kind of looking around and realizing that there's a different kind of cultural Catholicism in different parts of the country, or in, in Canada, or Mexico, or, you know, other parts of this continent, and that's something, I think, from the Protestant perspective, that sort of gets lost occasionally, um, that they sort of see the Catholic Church as monolithic and, you know, just being one way. And that's very different in different parts of the country and different parts of the world. So cultural Catholicism is really becoming more and more of a thing where you have people who don't go to Mass, uh, but they still identify as Catholic and I don't think that's necessarily, at least in the Protestants, I know that's not as strong. You know, like, I don't know people who leave the Episcopal Church and, like, and go, I'm Episcopalian. They just aren't anything anymore. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. That's, it's a weaker identity in some ways. And that's not a criticism. It's an observation. Um, And then the other thing is like Chick Tracks. Are you guys familiar with that? You know what those (laughs) were? Yeah. And that idea of Chick Tracks and like the nativist view of Catholics that sort of informs, you know, things like that, that we're all brainwashed by the Pope and... Um. That's and that we're gonna bring the pe- You know, like the fears people had about Kennedy that the he was gonna be a puppet of Rome and everybody was gonna get converted. And that's that's really from that anti-immigration history of America that's carried over. And so there's some kind of waspier history of Protestants where there's a fear of immigrants who are going to brainwash everybody and turn them into stinking papists. Mm. Um, (laughs) I think some of that prejudice lingers and is also manifested today in fear of um, Latinx communities and, and that prejudice that we're seeing enacted by, you know, ice raids, for example, Um, it's complicated, and I think there is some religion playing into that as well, the fear of the other in the body of the immigrant. Um, So how does that impact us as Catholics? You know, we're still – I think Catholics still hang on to our kind of otherness in some ways, uh, and we kind of hang on to that as a sort of a pride thing. We're different um, than – protestants but we're also our identity is getting watered down too as generations go by um you don't have the same kind of catholic neighborhoods that you used to have because there's no such thing as like if you go to new york little italy doesn't really exist anymore Hmm. Um, Or here in California, there's no Irish neighborhood, you know. Um, So there's definitely Mexican neighborhoods and El Salvadorian neighborhoods. But yeah, so white Catholics have lost that identity, which, yeah. And that's a lot of different answers to your question. Did that make any sense?
1: Yeah. No, that's super helpful.
2: Okay.
0: So maybe this isn't a a super good transition from what you're (laughs) getting at, but uh, I thought we could hopefully spend kind of, Uh, the latter half of the conversation chatting a little bit about some of your research on uh, the nuns as Mm -hmm. they're known Mm -hmm. um, and uh, leftist politics in the U S so uh, to make sure folks at home are still with us, I guess I'm sort of unfairly asking you to do a, a second elevator pitch to go an- another <laughs> floor uh, and uh, summarize some of that research that you've done on that group. So, what does it mean to be a nun, and why would somebody like you want to write a book about it?
2: So yeah, so it's it comes from the term comes from sociology, but it was it's best known because the Pew surveys that come out every few years. They give people uh, on religious landscapes in America, and they give people a variety of choices you can check. You know, my affiliation is Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, Muslim, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. And down at the bottom, you can check none of the above. And so people were in who check none of the above are called nuns. And that's not to say that they don't have a religious affiliation they may have many or they may be in between you know or they may be disaffiliating or or disaffiliated Um, so I got interested in writing about this for a number of reasons I wrote about it for America several years ago and I wrote it as a kind of salvo in the opening of a conversation I was hoping to have with religious people, because most of the readership in America is Catholics and is, you know, church going Catholics. And I wanted to, you know, open a conversation with them about how to talk to people who don't go to church um, and how to have relationships with, let's say children or grandchildren who are no longer going to church. So yeah, that's how I ended up, writing that article and then an editor from Orbis books approached me and asked if I wanted to turn it into a book. so I did.
1: Uh, so Dean and I are both formed by being a part of a like a cohort of like sort of a certain age group that has a lot of these nuns in it. Yeah uh, even though we still go to church uh, that's still the case. So I think a lot of us are trying to figure out how to relate to these domains of life, uh, like religion and politics that seem to be really important and meaningful, but are full of a lot of like toxic histories and habits. Mm-hmm. So uh, how do you see the religious and political landscape coming together for the demographics you research? Uh, what part of the nuns, uh, I'm sorry, what part do the nuns play in all the recent talk about the, uh, quote, religious left?
2: Yeah, well, starting with the political, religious landscape and how that plays into the... So between 30 and 40% of people under 50, so Gen X, millennials, and whatever the hell we're going to decide to call the younger than millennial people. Yeah. I've heard, like, what is the term people are using now? Generation zero? It's just totally dumb, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let them decide for themselves. But anyway... Um, so 40 up to 40 percent and growing they're not affiliated with any religion and that's for a variety of reasons but then when we look at politics this really interesting thing happens which is that my generation which is generation x starts disaffiliating at the highest rates um around the time that reagan gets elected so what happened Mm. in that curve in american history was you saw you know, the Christian right, televangelism, uh, all of this sort of like these two forces of um, conservative Christianity sort of coming together and people who were in their teens and 20s uh, looking at that and going, I don't want anything to do with that. I'm leaving church. And I was one of those people I left. Catholicism around that time myself, and I didn't come back for a good 20 years. So that um, kind of indicates that there was a mass rejection of um, religious affiliation when the Christian right rose to power. And now that we have Pence and um, some similar cohorts uh, in Trump's religious leadership cabinet uh, we're seeing you know similar arcs of disaffiliation in, you know college age and younger people are just looking at the christian conservative stuff and going you know no i don't want that's not i don't want to have to do with that no is that driving people to the so-called religious left we have no evidence that it is so far mm. so why aren't again so why isn't let's say our prototypical young evangelical woman whose parents voted for Trump and she's really concerned you know with she's starting to be more concerned with um, something like marriage equality or uh, immigration you know she's seeing immigrants in her neighborhood being threatened with deportation so when she looks around for a church why doesn't she go over to a religious left congregation like the UCC or um or a left-leaning Presbyterian Methodist church or something, Uh, she doesn't do it because it's just either they're not putting out a sign, you know, literally, like they're not doing a very good job of advertising themselves, or the religious left just doesn't have high enough of a profile that people even know that it exists in many cases. So that's a kind of two-pronged thing.
0: Uh, I think that makes sense for sure and it's something that we've been I guess struggling through on this podcast for a long time is oh, like sure. sometimes it's like pulling teeth to really think about the religious left sometimes you feel like you're I don't know more trying to talk about it so that it exists mm-hmm. rather than talking about it because yeah. it exists which is kind of an yeah. uncomfortable place to be but yeah um, yeah. I guess it's kind of interesting to think through like the way that a lot of these institutions are going through something like, like a crisis uh, of their own identities and, you know, the next generation in relation to them. So I don't know if you'd say something like institutional religions are having a crisis, maybe that is a good word or not, but it does seem safe to say political institutions in the U S are having a crisis. Um, at least following the Trump and Clinton election, um, is it a surprise to you that a group with rising disassociation from certain organized religious identities would also disassociate from current political institutions like the GOP or the Democrats?
2: No, it's not surprising at all. And I think that there's this larger sense of a lack of faith in institutions. You know, it's been bubbling up again since my generation. I just, I right after the election, I, um, A friend recommended to me this book um, called How to Survive a Plague, which is about the AIDS crisis and how uh, gay activists who were getting sick and dying, basically they weren't getting any help from the CDC in terms of developing medicines. And so groups like ACT UP and Queer Nation just sort of took it into their own hands to demand. And so they were doing things like die-ins and direct action. And it's a really phenomenal book. It's by David French. Everybody who's interested in what the hell we should be doing right now should be reading that book, because it really does look at how um, people can push an institution. So they did eventually succeed in pushing the institution, the CDC, to produce the retroviral cocktails that have kept people alive. So... But that suspicion and that sense that institutions have failed us, you know, this isn't new. I hear millennial friends and my students talking about it all the time. You know, oh, the Democrats suck and the Republicans suck and I don't want to belong to any party. And I'm like, you know, dude, we were saying the same thing in the 80s and the 90s. Like we (laughs) there was that same jadedness that has come back, I think, that there was a sort of blanket people wrapped around themselves with Obama of like, you know, at least we have this. And so we're safe for a while, but you know, the same problems were going on um, in many ways uh, with the institutions failing under Obama. So, so yeah, this doesn't surprise me at all. I think that it's just this larger dissatisfaction with, leadership and what leadership represents um you know i joked about the fact that we have riots at berkeley but we do Mm. and a lot of the reason we have riots at berkeley is because our students are don't feel like the leadership of the university is listening to them and so um and you know activists and others um who come to the university they see it as a proving ground where they can kind of like do their thing and make their case for whatever that they represent. Um, but they do that because they feel like there's no, they don't have any voice that leadership will listen to. So, yeah. So that's not surprising. I think there's a lot of correlation um, between these two things.
1: Hmm. Well, uh, on that note about dissatisfaction in uh, institutions, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Bernie Sanders won more votes from people under 30 <laughs> than Trump and Clinton combined <laughs> in the last uh-huh. uh, election. Um, and that's uh, kind of an interesting, an interesting thing where I guess um, th- th- there's something going on there. There's nuance to be kind of explored in that um, in that popularity and that sudden, again, interest in someone who is from uh, the Democratic Party. So um, on my very best days, uh, and only on those days, I feel like that means there might be a future for uh, a discussion about socialism and other political changes in the United States. Uh, so how do you think that faith communities will or can respond to that like, possible future?
2: Um, well, OK, so can I give you a cynical answer and an optimistic answer? Yeah,
0: absolutely. Okay. <laughs> yeah, please.
2: Good. OK, let's start with the cynical answer. The cynical answer is they're not going to do anything. Um, The U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, for example, let's just in my own denomination, uh, to many of us, they're basically just a right arm of the Republican Party. Um, They've sort of stepped up in terms of immigration, and that might be something that like a, a jaded, you know, nun, I know any nun might look at and say oh well those bishops they're standing up for immigrants you know okay maybe the catholic church isn't all totally horrible um but then they also just are really really backwards on gender issues um and so again you get that dichotomy that is going to drive people away and so when we're talking about socialism having a voice in the democratic party you know the fact that bernie sanders is so popular and you know will will he bring young voters back to the democratic party that's like saying is pope francis going to bring people back to the catholic church right um he has not there is no such thing as the francis effect in terms of bringing young or disaffiliated Catholic spec, We have not one shred of evidence that that has yet happened in five years. So, you know, um, my cynical side says it's great that, like, it's great that he's there doing what he does, but, you know, I don't know that that's going to move the needle of the party further to the left, right? And I'm saying that from California, which is like, (laughs) you know, like, here we are, hashtag the resistance, um, hashtag resist, like, California, you know, where, where California goes, the country shall follow, etc. You know, yeah, like, we're here doing our thing. But like, is the country following, you know, not really. So... Uh, so how are faith communities going to respond to this? Like, so this, the optimist side of me says, look at Reverend Barber, right? Look at the Poor People's Campaign. Look at um, Sister Simone Campbell. Look at the activists, the faith-based activists who were involved in the women's marches. And, and that's amazing that this is happening, but is it enough To move the needle again like you know I go to a pretty great Catholic Church here in Oakland California which is a city that has historically been um, a, a highly populated by African Americans and it's a black Catholic Church that embraces black Catholic traditions and social justice and all that but the pews are not full every week and and it's this really progressive model of what a church community can be and how they're involved in local politics and but it's not you know it's not filling up every week and so i would like it if it did but um that's not my job because i you know i can't lead that uh, that community and so i can write about them and i did for america i i wrote a story about them and so, um, so yeah, Going back to your question, like, um, is, you know, are we going to see uh, faith communities on the left um, sort of influencing people the same way that Bernie Sanders might? You know, I hope so. Um, and we'll we'll see what happens this year. Um, Reverend Barber, you know, he's amazing, but he's only one man. And so um, we need like thousands of him.
1: Yeah, that makes sense to me. Well, so what I hear you're saying, then, is that institutions probably won't do anything. But perhaps there are people that could rally around those institutions and pressure them into doing something.
2: Yeah, I think that religious lay people, we kind of tend to forget that there's more of us than there are in the hierarchy. (laughs) You know what I mean? Especially for Catholics, I think, maybe you can relate to this like when you talk to other catholics you ever get the sense of like gosh i wish my pastor or my parish would do get involved in immigration right and then like why doesn't my priest give homilies about immigration and then they never go to him and say that right Mm -hmm. and so i think that that's just the nudge that people need to give um religious leadership much like we need to nudge our political leadership i think that we need to just nudge people more and i can say that easily as a journalist and (laughs) as a college professor right i can do that stuff all the time but you know getting your friends who are kind of on the fence to do that that's the harder part but i think we need to exercise our agency as 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 lay people more because um, if we did nudge our churches, and then our churches did start showing up at secular rallies, or you know, if your church shows up at at an immigration hearing for at the courthouse, and they're all wearing sweatshirts with the name of your church on them, for example, that's mm-hmm. prophetic witness. Um, so, but somebody's got to got to design the sweatshirt. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs>
0: a few well several episodes now ago we talked to this historian named heath carter who wrote a great book called union made yeah and uh, it's a great book <laughs> the yes the craziest thing that he um came up with at least the thing i found crazy in the book was uh like when the church was when a lot of churches were taking a really strong stance against organized labor mm-hmm. uh a bunch of the workers in the churches just basically like had a like a pew strike like they just all decided not to show up on sunday uh-huh. and uh it's it's pretty wild and it pushed a lot of these ministers to start taking labor issues more seriously. And then, uh, I don't know, as you're talking about it, it just kind of makes me feel like, you know, it's not like it's hard to imagine, but it's not as though there's no precedent for uh, lay people kind of taking those matters into their own hands and, and making those kinds of demands as they feel uh, inspired.
2: Exactly. And I mean, this came up in, um, conversations with other women recently, like what if, you know, th- what if one Sunday we all just didn't go to mass And people have tried to do this in the past. And unfortunately, like women would get together and say, "Okay, none of us are going to go to mass to make a statement. And then um, a bunch of people went anyway. Right. And so it didn't it didn't work. And so you really, really, really have to push people um, to the point like that they understand that it will send a message and so yeah everybody should read um that book <laughs> <And> like, <laughs> so yeah and everybody should you know look at what's worked and i think there's a fear of like if we look at what works in secular politics that our our faith will become secularized but like what's wrong with that
0: uh well that's a great note uh for us <laughs> to, uh, to start uh, wrapping up on i think at the end uh, we're kind of at the at the bottom of the the hour yeah um but we just wanted to thank you a bunch for coming on the show. Uh, we've been trying to find a way to um, organize this episode for a little while now and uh, we're just really grateful that you were able to make some time in a really busy semester to, to chat with us about some of the stuff you're writing and, and thinking about and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll keep uh, following all that good reporting you've been doing for sure i really
2: appreciate it you guys and thank you i'm a fan of the podcast and so i'm it's it's really nice to be here with you
1: <laughs> cool thank you thanks for listening to the Magnificast and thanks Kaya for talking to us uh that was a super interesting conversation and I learned a lot of really fun things this week about uh Catholicism just really really gets the uh noggin joggin if you will <laughs> um you
0: sounded really convinced by the end uh it sound <laughs> it really sounds like you're gonna convert now
1: yeah I don't know um the biggest thing that keeps me f- con- from converting is uh just the the trads who harass us on twitter so they're doing whatever the opposite of the lord's work is they're doing it um anyways if you like this episode and you uh, want to support our podcast you could support us on patreon uh you should go do that uh, patreon.com slash the magnificast um, follow us on Twitter, follow us on Facebook. We've got a good Facebook group going called the Magnificast Basement. You can join it. It's a private group, so you can say all of those really private things that you don't want uh, other people on Facebook knowing about. <laughs> um, yeah. Also, it's worth noting, too, that we, uh, are now hosted by some very fine, uh, and wonderful people over on Theology Corner. So you can find us there uh, at theologycorner.net slash the Magnificast. Oh, I'm sorry. It's actually theologycorner.net slash Magnificast, not the, just just Magnificast. Uh, there's also some other good podcasts over there. You can check them out. Uh, it's good good stuff. So go over there and take a take a little looky-loo at it and see what you think. One more thing before we go. Uh, thank you, Amari Armstrong, for the extremely good intro beats. And uh, thank you, Theological Spoon, for... Uh, just being being you and letting us use your song as an outro because people like it people are always just like man what's that song and true. uh, every time we tell them and they're like wow great thanks this is what i came for not your podcast keep your hoods
2: up and you stay up